We read from Holy Scripture this evening in the book of Revelation, and we will read chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. What follows is our text for this evening. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, 
from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the key to understanding this passage, which contains a rather vivid image of things in heaven and things on earth in figurative form, the key to understanding this passage is the identity of the child that is born of the woman in this text. That's the key because that is the explanation for everything else. And key also because the identity of that child is unmistakable. Even the children here should be able to recognize the identity of the child that is born here and described. And that in particular because he is described as a man-child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And that phrase, rod of iron, always refers to the Christ or to the Messiah. In Psalms 2, verse 7, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. In this very book, in Revelation 2, verse 27, we read this, He that overcometh will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as I received of my Father. And in Revelation 19, verse 13, we read that He is the Word that shall smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. The importance of that identification is that this means that the event where the man-child is caught up unto God and to His throne refers to the ascension of Jesus Christ after His death and resurrection. That is how it is also described many times in Scripture. The ascension is called, for example, in Acts 1 verse 2, the day He was taken up. We read in verse 11 of that chapter, 
how this Jesus is taken up from you into heaven. In spite of the key of the passage and its interpretation being the identity of the man-child, the focus of this text, however, is not on the man-child or on Christ as such. But rather, the focus is upon what is identified in the beginning of the passage as two wonders in heaven. Two figures, two wonders attract one's attention in the passage and are described vividly so that they are unmistakable to us and the Spirit therefore emphasizes how important they are to the passage. The first is a woman, the very woman who gives birth to the man-child, the Christ, and then a great red dragon who tries to devour that child, and then after the man-child is taken up into heaven, turns, turns, after being cast out from heaven, to persecute that woman. And our focus this evening is upon that persecution, the dragon's persecution of the woman. We consider the fact first, secondly, the deliverance, and then the comfort of this. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ has recently celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ and celebrated in many ways, including many trying to capture that event with various figures, various pictures, various enactments and scenes. Not only are such things sin, but they always miss something very, very important in the scene of Jesus' birth, one that's brought out vividly in the passage. For at Jesus' birth, lurking in the shadows of the cattle shed in which He's born, is a great red dragon. While Mary is giving birth to the Christ child, there is a dragon waiting in the darkness to devour the man-child as soon as it is born. Never will you see that depicted in any birth scene, nativity scene of Christ. Nevertheless, it's as real as were the cattle and the manger and the swaddling clothes. That great red dragon is nothing other than Satan himself. We're told that expressly in verse 9, where we read that when the great red dragon was cast out, he is that old serpent called the devil and Satan. That this is Satan is also evident from 
the description as a dragon and as a serpent, really referring basically to the same thing in Scripture. He's referred to primarily as a serpent because that was the creature that Satan used to tempt Eve and subsequently cause all mankind to fall into sin and is referred to as a dragon to emphasize that he is a hideous beast. He is a beast of great power and strength and one who transforms himself into a creature of great strength. He is described as being red because in the first place he is a cold-blooded murderer who will spill the blood of every human being who has ever lived and because he is the original sinner. He is the original wicked one. The source of all the blood-red sin and blood that is spilt in the world. The great red dragon. We read also that on his head are crowns. And in fact, he has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon those seven heads. The biblical way of describing him as the king of kings with regard to this earth and its earthly kingdom. The Bible there describing how in one way or another he rules over all the nations and all the kings and influences them greatly in his service. But he is one who is Lord over them all. We also read that with his tail, he drew a third part of the stars from heaven, which is a reference to the fact that when he fell, he drew with him a considerable number of angels, which the Bible later will describe as reprobate angels, to sin with him and whom he takes down to perdition with him. The occasion for the text that we consider is also brought out in the passage, which is this. Satan is not successful in his attempt to devour the baby when he's born. Not successful in his attempt to destroy the man-child, which is evident from the fact that he ascends into heaven. He is not able to kill him on the earth. Notice, we know of course, that Jesus died. But that death is nowhere to be found in the passage. Rather, we read that the child grows into a man and simply ascends into heaven. Upon ascending into heaven, Satan and his fallen angels are then cast out into the earth where he then turns his attention to the woman. He persecutes the woman 
And the woman, of course, is the church. The woman here is not Mary, the Virgin Mary, but rather what she represents, which is Jesus, the, the mother of Jesus Christ, which is the church. That's evident from Scripture. In fact, the phrase in the passage where he persecutes the woman is a direct reference to Genesis 3.15, where Christ is the seed of the woman. And the woman there isn't simply Eve, but the church. Jesus Christ comes forth from the church. And Jesus Himself, in the book of Matthew, calls all who believe on Him His mother. And in Galatians 4, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says that through the preaching, Christ is formed in them. Satan then goes to persecute the church in hatred for Jesus Christ who casts him out of heaven. That's the meaning that he persecutes her when he sees he is cast out in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that, he was cast out into the earth. When he realizes that no more can he roam in heaven, no more is he able to stay in heaven and is cast out, then he turns his attention to the woman. Depicting there that, of course, the motivation for the persecution of the woman is the devil's hatred of Christ himself, and especially hateful because Christ has outwitted him. Christ has, in fact, defeated him, and defeated him so that he has no authority and power in heaven whatsoever anymore. And therefore, on behalf of his people, showing forth the very victory that he has worked in his death and resurrection, the very first thing that Christ does when he ascends into heaven is he gives Michael and his angels power to cast out the devil and his angels, which is why we read also a loud voice exclaims when Christ arises in the ascension, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accuses them before God night and day. Prior to the actual death of Christ on the cross, an event that must happen and is necessary even though God has ordained it from eternity, Satan is able to remain in heaven and there accuse the saints in heaven before God night and day so that Christ now having paid the price Christ having now atoned for their sins in full ascending to heaven 
and showing the very authority and power he now possesses by virtue of his victory over Satan. The first order of business is to cast him out. And there is rejoicing in heaven. Rejoicing among the saints. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth, especially the church. Because the one who accused the brethren night and day in heaven, who accused them that they had no right to be there, had no business being there because Christ has done nothing, their sins have not been atoned, now has come to earth. Knowing in the first place he is defeated, that principally he is defeated. He has no right and power to accuse anymore. That does not mean he does not accuse the brethren night and day here on the earth. Oh, he does. But there's no power in his ranting and in his raving. There is no authority in his accusations for those who are in Jesus Christ by faith. Those whose sins were atoned by his blood may simply point to him and say, paid in full. Nevertheless, woe, because he comes now to persecute, to persecute the church, and persecute the church in a peculiar way. And the idea of the passage is woe because his persecution is a desperation, a form of desperation, knowing he has lost the battle and fueled by a hatred, a hatred for the man-child that has defeated him, the king of the beasts. He turns with all his fury and anger and accusations. And notice, he devotes them not to the world, but to the woman, to the church. One reason that the church is described as it is in the opening passage where she is described even as a wonder in heaven. It's an amazing thing that preceding this woe and preceding all the description of the persecution is first of all the description of the woman as a in heaven, and even greater than the heavenly bodies, because she's clothed with the sun and has the moon under her feet, and on her head is a crown of twelve stars, representing, of course, that she too is a king and a prince in the earth, and one who has been ruled in the old dispensation, 
spiritually and figuratively by the twelve tribes and in the New Testament under the twelve apostles. This passage then teaches a couple of things about the church. And the first thing is that the church is one. The focus of the passage is upon this woman in the New Testament. That's the reference to a time and times and half a time. Or as we sometimes read it in Scripture, a year, two years, and a half a year, or three and a half years. Or as we sometimes find it, 42 months, or 1,260 days. Those are all figures that refer to the same period of time, namely the new dispensation, which is half of the fullness of time. Notice in the passage that there is one woman, one church. There is one who gives birth to the Christ. One who is found at the beginning even as a wonder in heaven. One who exists throughout the old dispensation in preparation as it were pregnant with the Christ and one woman after the Christ is born and descends into heaven. That must be pointed out because there are those in the church who divide the dispensations into two completely different parts so that there is not even two churches but there is an object of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ, which is the Jew, and that remains God's object of His saving grace in Jesus Christ. And then there is the church. But the real focus of God is upon the Old Testament people, the Jews. But notice here the church is one. There's no place for dispensationalism. The passage in the second place teaches that this is what the church can expect in this world from the time that Jesus has ascended until the time that He returns on the clouds of heaven. That's what's being figuratively given there in the passage by the reference to the time church is never without persecution and there never is a time that satan is not intent and trying to destroy the church we may ourselves sometimes think so because we see persecution only in one form namely when there is bodily persecution when there is a physical threat to our life or to our property. But according to the passage, the dragon persecutes the church from beginning to end. 
that's important too. Because there is a large part of the church today that denies this. It's not only us who might imagine that there's never a time that we are persecuted unless we are having our life threatened. But the same people who teach that there are two completely dispensations, two different objects of God's work, also teach that this persecution that the Bible speaks of frequently and is described even by our Lord Jesus Christ also falls only upon the Jew. The church, which God is working with now, will be raptured, will be raptured somewhere from the earth before all this persecution occurs. But there is another large, large group in the church which says all this persecution was already past. What's being described as persecution, what we read in Scripture in terms of persecution, already occurred in the past. It occurred in the form of God's judgment, again, mainly upon the Jewish people for their rejection of Jesus Christ, which persecution culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. This passage clearly teaches otherwise, that there is a person persecution of the church throughout the whole entire new dispensation. The key for us to see this evening is that this persecution comes in two forms, or we might even say two phases, one after the other. Not as if we may expect one for a certain period of many, many hundreds of years, and then the other. But this persecution throughout the entire dispensation always takes these two successive forms. And what are they? Well, the first is described in verse 15. Namely, in these terms, that the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. What that's referring to is the flood of deceitful words and the flood of deceitful philosophy and the flood of any kind of deceit that continually issues forth from the mouth of Satan. What Satan does in the first place when he tries to persecute the church and destroy the church is to drown her, and to drown her in a flood of his lies. That's, of course, in keeping with the character of Satan, who is not only a murderer, but according to Scripture, a liar and the father of it. And that's also how he's described in verse 9, the great dragon, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth, the whole world. His purpose, of course, with these lies is to make the church apostatize. That's the meaning of the phrase, 
and carry away. The idea is that Satan issues forth a flood of lies. Two things he hopes to accomplish with those lies. The first is that he deceives the whole world. He gains a following. The whole world believes and swallows his lies. But in the second place, he tries to unloose, as it were, the church from her spiritual foundations and like a flood, lift her up and carry her away from that which would otherwise keep her safe. But then there's a second phase, a second aspect to this persecution. And this is the one we normally think of. Before we move on, we ought to remember that. Persecution. Indeed, as we're going to see, a great deal of persecution. A great deal of Satan's rage and anger and desire to destroy the church comes not in the form of bodily persecution, but comes in the form of the lie. And one must see here the lie not just from any one particular place, but the lie wherever it is found is Satan's attempt to destroy the church by lifting her up and carrying her away into apostasy with the wicked world. Now there is another one described in verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's being described here is what we normally think of physical persecution, what the Bible refers to as scourgings and imprisonment and stoning and being sawn asunder and slain with the sword and beheaded. What is it called in Scripture? Tribulation. And a tribulation that will culminate as Jesus even Himself prophesies in a tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world or shall be. And what explains it is a certain failure of the first type of persecution to destroy the church. Notice, and the dragon was wroth. Wroth, why? Because the flood that he issues forth from his mouth is not successful in destroying the church. Something happens. The flood is swallowed up. He does not accomplish his entire purpose with that flood. And so he becomes angry and he does something else. He makes war with the remnant of her seed. He sees that in spite of the flood of lies, in spite of his attempt to destroy the church with his lies, there is a remnant of her seed that remains, that is not washed away, but rather 
they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself testifies that they are His. This is what Satan uses when he realizes that the flood of lies that he spreads, if it does anything, only accomplishes eliminating the carnal seed, the carnal element from the spiritual church. So that there still is a remnant. And when he sees that remnant, the elect who still keep the commandments of God and give a witness to Jesus Christ, he becomes angry and he, as it were, pulls out all the stops. But God preserves the church. There is a deliverance. There is a salvation. Despite the rage of Satan, God is at work. Now God in the first place uses a rather strange means to preserve the church. We read God does that by preparing a place for her in the wilderness. And that receives emphasis for in verse 6 we read also that she hath a place prepared of God. So notice that it is God's purpose to preserve the woman, to keep her, to keep her against all the rage and all the persecution of Satan. And does that by preparing a place. And remarkably, that place is not in heaven, but upon the earth. Indeed, strange that the place is described as a wilderness. In other words, God deliberately and purposefully preserves the church by giving her, preparing her a place in the wilderness. Now, what does the wilderness refer to? Well, the idea of wilderness is that it is within the world itself, and yet it's separate from the world. It's close to the world. It's in the world. It's a part of the world, and yet it's separate from the world. It's a biblical picture of what we know as the antithesis. Not now a physical separation from the world, for this place is not in heaven, but it is in the earth. And yet it's wilderness. There's a certain spiritual difference, a marked difference in the place that she has prepared and the world itself. We only need think of Israel. The great deliverance of Jesus Christ pictured in Old Testament Israel where they were in bondage in Egypt and God delivers them with His mighty hand by ten plagues and they're thrust out of Egypt. The great civilization, the great world power, the great place of culture, the great place of onions and leeks and garlics and wonderful food and life, but yet one of bondage and God brings her out into the wilderness where she lives for 40 years until she finally crosses over the Jordan into the promised land. In other words, on the one hand, the wilderness is a place where one can expect to be exposed to all kinds of dangers, all kinds of en enemies, where one is indeed vulnerable. 
the wilderness was a dangerous place. A place without any food, any drink. And yet, a place where God preserved His church. Where He supplied the church's every need. Where He supplied their need for food, their need for drink, their need for clothing. Where He protected them from the wild beasts and animals and from the enemies that would prey on the vulnerable. It's also a place where there are many who fall in unbelief. There was of the church in the wilderness many, and indeed entire generation, who fell in unbelief. And yet God preserved a remnant. God used the time in the wilderness to even strengthen a remnant that would enter into the promised land by faith. All picture of what the New Testament church lives as a church in the New Testament. It refers to the fact that it's God's will, indeed His desire, and a means by which He preserves the church that we live antithetically. And notice, this is not something we decide to do. This is the church's place. God makes the church spiritually different from the world and yet deliberately places that world in the midst of the church. The church is in the world, but not of the world. The church lives on the earth, but she is from heaven. Notice how often Christ emphasized that. Ye are from above. Notice where the woman begins. We see her first in heaven. Physically, we are called to live within the world, to work in the world, to eat in the world, to raise children in the world, to build churches in the world, to send forth missionaries in the world, and yet, spiritually separate. You may see that spiritual separation as essentially this, as it's described in the passage. They keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those two things. Want to know where the church is? Look for those who keep the commandments of God and give testimony to Jesus Christ, who are always confessing and speaking and preaching and glorying in Jesus Christ, the man-child that is born and taken to heaven. That's the essence of her spiritual difference. Now perhaps you understand the content of Satan's flood, his deceit. What is it that he lies about? What is the essence of all his lies? Whether they come from the world or whether they come even from within the church. Whether they come from a mouth of a preacher or whether they come from a television set. What's the essence and core of his lies? It's this. This is not the wilderness. And if you're in the wilderness, you need to get out of the wilderness. You need to go back to Egypt. You need to have more fun. You don't have to deny yourself anything in this world. This world is a place of happiness and joy. You ought to join in. The spiritual life that you talk about, that's no life at all. This life, the here and now, is where it's at. Eat, drink, and be merry. Don't burden yourself with obeying God's commandments. 
Maybe the lie is he comes along and says, well, they're all forgiven anyway, so it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter where this lie comes from. It can come from a television set, come from books, come from TV and movies, can come from philosophy class, can come from all over. It's a flood. In other words, it comes from all directions. And it builds and it builds and it builds. You cannot escape it. There's nowhere to go to escape from this flood. Everywhere you look, do you see the message? Sure you do. You find it even in your own heart, don't you? From the day you're born to the day you die, there will be something in you. Part of your flesh. Flesh that Satan lies to and manipulates and has control of. That this is the only life. The life of the flesh. If the flesh isn't being indulged, if the flesh is threatened, then your real life is threatened. Notice how that's a connection even to the persecution that follows. Do all you can to preserve the flesh. Man will do anything to live. Those lies, even we shouldn't forget lies with regard to doctrine. I mentioned some lies about eschatology. Those lies are all part of this flood. How does the church live? How will the church live? What will the people think if they believe, if they believe that there is no persecution? If they forget about Satan, if they themselves are directed to their own personal inner lives, that the Christian religion is about one of introspection, self-improvement, and many other such things. It all serves the purpose of Satan. But now notice, God preserves her. God deliberately places her there. I said earlier that this isn't really something that the church even really actively decides to do. Oh, it's engaged, no doubt. We actively live the antithetical life. But notice, God places her in the wilderness and makes that separation. I will put enmity, God said in the beginning. And so we read that God, that she is given two wings of a great eagle to fly there. Similar to what we read in Exodus 19, verse 4. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you out Myself. A picture of God's deliverance. What is it that makes the church different? What is it that places the church in the wilderness? What is it that makes her the object of Satan's hatred? And the answer is her deliverance from the world. It's from her deliverance from the world by her Lord Jesus Christ. So that she looks different. So that she is different. Even though she is in the world. God makes that happen. God comes and He does that in the first place by His Word. Well, He does it all by His Word. But God makes the enmity. God places the difference there, first of all, by His Word to live according to His commandments. 
to live differently, to come out from her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins and her plagues. And then in the second place, God by His Word strengthens the church, gives her strength to live that life in the midst of the world. That's the reference to the fact that God in the wilderness nourishes her there. In the wilderness, God feeds her. God feeds her by the Word. But God also amazingly preserves the church by the very environment of the wilderness, which would otherwise be a threat and a danger to her. This is, this is what's so counterintuitive, so ironical. God places her in a dangerous place. God places the church in a place that one wouldn't think she would be safe. But there she lives. There she lives before the face of the serpent. And God preserves His church there. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us. We realize that the woman and the man-child are related. And we remember how the man-child defeated Satan by entering into his very fangs, as it were. Giving himself to all the considerable power of the great red beast and defeating him there in the grave. The grave could not hold him. Would it surprise us then that the man-child related to this woman, the God of this woman, would place her then in the wilderness in a place where he knows full well Satan is raging, but uses that to preserve her. That's brought out when remarkably we read that the very earth opens up her mouth and swallows up the flood which the dragon casts out of his mouth. Remarkable that even in the picture that's being referenced here, the wilderness, Israel in the wilderness, how many people were swallowed up by the earth there were men like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who spread the lie that Moses has brought you out here to kill you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's a power-hungry, greedy tyrant who's going to rule over you. You should have different rulers. You should go back to Egypt. You should go back there to live. There you will be safe. There your life will be preserved. And the earth came and swallowed him up. This is a picture of a couple of things. First of all, that when Satan sends forth his lie, he deceives the whole world. In other words, that lie goes forth and the world swallows it up. She takes it in. And you say, what's the significance of that? Well, this. As she swallows the lies, as she takes them in, as she lives according to them, she becomes ripe for judgment, the judgment of this very man-child from heaven. It also is a picture of the fact that God uses the very spiritual isolation of the church to preserve her from these lies. What, beloved, is the entertainment of the church? Are you entertained the way the world is entertained? Do you find yourself in the places where these floods lift up? No, you don't. Or you shouldn't. 
The church doesn't come in contact with them exactly because of her very own spiritual isolation. It pictures the fact that God uses the wicked world uses the wicked world to absorb, as it were, these lies. God, Satan sends them out, sends them out over the airwaves, sends them out over pulpits, sends them out over books and music and TV and movies, sends them out in the colleges and the school, sends them out. And by those very lies that he intends to use to destroy the church, they get sucked up by the world and the world is the one that is destroyed. But the church is, as it were, not affected. Oh, there are some affected. Remember the reference to a remnant. The floods do come and carry away physical members of the church. Carry away certain institutions called churches. Carry away preachers and elders and deacons and members all the time. They believe the lie. They leave Jesus Christ. They quit obeying His commandments and giving testimony to His Word. But as Paul said, they're not really of the church. And Satan notices it. Satan notices that these floods never really destroy the church. Oh, they may carry many away, but the church remains. And then he turns to physical persecution But God preserves the church there too. And the devil knows it. Why doesn't the devil start with physical persecution? Why doesn't he start there by threatening our life and threatening our property and threatening everything we own? Because that's never worked. History is full of many examples where when Satan has done that, all it's done is scattered the church again in the wilderness. The church just moves. The church just goes somewhere else. She's established somewhere else. And so, they've always said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, God preserves His church. The flood is swallowed up. The church may even be physically displaced. But in the wilderness, she always finds a place. Should she lose her life, Should she lose her property? Should the members lose everything? They still are not destroyed. This, beloved, is the gospel word of comfort to us tonight. And it's found here in the Scriptures exactly because God knows we are tempted. We are easily carried away or tempted to worry. We see Satan's assault on the church. We hear his lies. We have an ally even in our own heart. So God not only warns us so that we are faithful, we live by faith, but so that we don't also worry or fear. We are brought exactly right to God's Word by which God preserves us. God reminds us it's simply Satan's wrath. If Satan would come and gather us all up and chop all our heads off tonight, it's just a sign of desperation. 
because the church is also in heaven. And to heaven the church goes. This is a comforting word because it shows without a shadow of a doubt who is victorious. Is Satan victorious? Because there's lies all over the world. Lies about the church. Lies about you. Lies about me. The accuser of our brethren. Of course not. The one who's victorious is in heaven. The one who is victorious is demonstrated by the fact that Satan is even cast out in here. That's not defeatism. That's not pessimism. That's victory. And God, again here, shows it to us. So remember, beloved, the truth of John 16, verse 33. And we'll end with that tonight. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Maybe tribulation in the form of your best friends lying about you. Or being confronted with lies wherever you go. Or maybe even physical persecution that threatens your life. In the world ye shall have persecution, tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for our deliverance and our preservation. We see, even at this late date in history, Thy faithfulness preserving the church over against the rage of Satan, over against his lies, his flood of filth, his flood of immorality and wickedness. We see, O Lord, that Thou dost preserve the church even against His rage which makes war with the remnant. For there is always a remnant. For the church is chosen unto our Lord Jesus Christ from eternity, bought by His blood and preserved by His power. Indeed, the very power and authority that cast out the devil. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.